Okay, today I'm in London with uh, Simon Corkwell, well known in city circles and also probably lesser known, but to bookmakers he's known as a formidable punter. Um, Simon, I'm told that you're known as Britain's most feared feared bear raider. Is that a justified title? I've had my moments, but that was quite a few years ago. I wouldn't pay any attention to that. I, I don't believe my own publicity, if that's any help to you. Now, on, on, the, on the train up, I was reading your book, Evil's Good, and it says you have a wife, 37 bookmakers, and 12 vintners to support. Now, do you still have those bookmakers? No, because they've all run away, with the exception of Star Racing. <laughs> OK, Simon, where did your interest in betting, apart from the stock market, sort of germinate? I'm not sure. Uh, but across the, uh, the corridor from my study at rugby, uh, there was the son of a trainer. Uh, the trainer was Ken Cundall, and his son, Peter, was, um, uh, as I say, virtually in the study opposite mine. And uh, Peter tells me that uh, I assisted him with his uh, homework. Uh, whether that's true or not, I don't know. But he insists it is, and why should I doubt it? Uh, the fact is that he did need assistance. <laughs> the fact is that um, he came in one day, I hope I get these dates right, and I think he said that uh, the favourite for the Oaks was Paddy Prendergast's Noblesse. And Peter's father, Ken, was running a horse, I think, called Poor Parley. And that was ridden by Scobie Breezley. And of course, I was absorbing names. I couldn't put them in context. I didn't know anything about it. I thought that's very, very interesting. He said, you must back Poor Parley each way. She's bound to get a place. She was 14 to 1 or something like that. And uh, so a friend of mine, who could use his mother's account, placed the bet. Uh, and, uh, and then I was introduced to the problem that um, he could only put the bet on at totals for the place. Uh, it wasn't an each-way bet. And so although poor Polly was placed, uh, she only paid a little over even money for the place. And uh, that rather, that was, I think only had four shillings each way. Mind you, it may have been the only four shillings I had in the world, so it was quite a, quite a bet. But anyway, uh, that was all dealt with. And uh, I thought that was interesting. The history of England and what people did in England was very interesting. And I was very taken uh, by the book by Siegfried Sassoon, the memoirs of a, of a fox hunting man. And uh, he, at one stage, shared quarters in hunting territory, I think up towards Nottingham, I'm not sure. Um, I, and he, the, the chap was called Dennis Milden, I think, from memory. I hope I got that right. Anyway, 
Milton said there was a horse running in the Cambridgeshire, which was, I think it was 25 to 1, and uh, he had had 10 pounds each way on it at 25 to 1, which I suppose is quite a lot for a, a bet in or about 1900. And uh, Julius scooted up and I said, now that's very interesting. How do you prepare all that? And uh, I thought, that's very interesting. And I used to go down to a betting shop in the town and uh, spend the afternoon in there. Uh, the housemaster was very nice about it because my jacket must have stunk of stale cigarette smoke in the way the betting shops really did smell then. They really were awful. Anyway, it didn't bother me. I was very happy down there, uh, thinking or imagining I was thinking about things. And then I'd back a winner and back a loser and that sort of thing. And I thought, this is very, very interesting. And you start to think in terms of statistics. And uh, racing, to me, is all about statistics. You can't, you can't escape them at all. And uh, forever I've been interested in statistics. I'm not a mathematician, but I have a facility with basic figures, and so it, it wasn't difficult for me to um, fit in with these uh, statistics. Heathorns used to have a vast betting shop uh, not far from the stock exchange, and the trade must have been huge. I mean, there must have been do I exaggerate to say there would have been 60, 75 people in there? Well, it was huge. Then they had a, a separate betting office uh, in, in an adjacent uh, block, and uh, if it was acceptable to them, acceptable to you, and provided you lost, you were obviously acceptable to them. And uh, I think I would have had bets of the order of £40. This would have been about 1967. Were you studying at this point to, to make sure you were a winner? Is oh no, I, do, I, I wish I could have made sure I was a winner, but I certainly wasn't. And I ran up a, uh, an overdraft of £1,000, which was quite a lot then. And uh, my father undertook to guarantee it. So when I went out in early 1969 to um, uh, to Zambia, uh, I owed this £1,000. My father was extremely concerned that he was on the hook. Anyway, the fact is that uh, he wanted the £1,000 cleared off. And... Um, it wasn't that easy to do overnight, although I was outrageously overpaid in Central Africa, I can tell you that. Uh, and uh, after some very vivid correspondence between myself and my father, um, I just put my head down and I just earned it off, I just paid it off, and that was that. Uh, Zambia's rather unusual, as countries go. Uh, in that betting debts were legally enforceable there. 
and as far as I'm aware, it was the only territory in the world where that was, where betting debts were enforceable. And I, it, was, I, it was tremendous fun. Were you still betting when you were over there? Oh, yes. Uh, there had you taken it more seriously at that point? I mean, did you not, were you not adverse to losing? Well, you, yeah, well if, you're not, if you're averse to losing, you shouldn't go betting. But uh, one must accept that losing uh, comes along, and if you're not prepared to accept that, then you're, you're in the wrong territory. But anyway, uh, I, I just went along, and there were, there were a couple of betting shops in Lusaka. There was one up on the Copper Belt, where I eventually came to reside, and uh, one further out to the west and so on. I, I thought it was fine. It was very, it was agreeable. I don't think there was any violence. That's what people um, wonder about. Non-payment of betting debts uh, did not lead to people's legs being broken or anything like that. Uh, whereas I think in the Far East, uh, there, was, there was a different experience. If you uh, didn't settle properly in the Far East, you would have a visit from the triads. And I, I have no personal experience of this at all, but that apparently did go on. What goes on nowadays, I don't know. I've never been involved uh, with an account in, uh, in the Far East, uh, at least not in Hong Kong. I have had an account in Taiwan, but that's another story. There wasn't violence in Zambia, that's what I would say. And uh, it was very interesting, and I met all sorts of characters. Uh, there was a relation there, or say he told me, of the Earl of Derby. And he said, you, Simon Corkwell, will either end up very rich or you'll go to prison. And, <laughs> which I think is rather a gloomy sort of thing to say somewhat. But anyway... He's been wrong on both accounts. <laughs> and when you, did you have more respect for um, a professional city trader or a professional gambler? There's no difference between the two. I can't see how people think there's a difference. It's true that if you take a bet on a share, it may be a year, even five years, before you know whether you've won or lost on the bet. But it's nonetheless, it's a bet. And, in fact, uh, one of the few interesting things I've ever read in the Daily Mail, uh, this was quite a few years ago now, uh, there was, uh, I, think, I think the editor was then Alex Brummer, well he still is actually, the city editor, and I remember the remark he wrote, it was a very important one, uh, a safe investment is one whose risks have not yet become apparent. Well, that actually is a very good point. Uh, your, your, um, your nickname, Evil Knievel, where's that come from? Oh, well, what happened was that um, uh, in October 1990, um, I alighted upon... Maxwell Communication Corporation, uh, ticker code MWC, uh, not MCC, 
a reputable organization, relatively speaking. But anyway, uh, the, I went through the accounts assisted by a friend and it was quite obvious that there were very considerable questions to uh, ask about Maxwell. And funnily enough, I lived with him, so to speak, for many uh, years previously, because I was brought up in Oxford, and uh, Maxwell had rather a grand house uh, up on in Headington. Do you know Oxford at all? I don't know. Well, there was uh, Headington Hill, and off Headington Hill was Headington Hall, where <laughs> he would take his helicopter and so on. And uh, he was said to uh, go round uh, shaving himself you know, as he drove his Bentley or his roller or whatever it was, and that was just described as disgraceful. I must say, if you're in a hurry, I don't see why you shouldn't shave yourself as you're driving along. But anyway, that was what was said then. I don't know what people would say now. I suppose everyone goes around shaving. I don't know, because I don't travel around, so I'm not looking at uh, people's shaving habits as early in the morning or any other time for that to come to that. But anyway, uh, I had had it pointed out to me uh, when I had no means of arguing back, uh, that Maxwell was the most frightful shit. And I'm sure he was, and there's no doubt in my mind about that. And so, if you like, I was predisposed to think that there was something wrong with this chap. And of course, he really was a bad one. He um, uh, had built up Maxwell Communication Corporation, and but he was an out-and-out fraudster. I mean, he just his whole life was given over to fraud. Uh, he wasn't a coward. In fact, he had been—I think he had got a military cross during the Second World War. Although it may be that he bribed the chap who arranged the citation behind him. I don't. No, I mean, Maxwell was just given over to deceit and, and guessing, really. That was his thing. And uh, as I went through the accounts, you started to ask yourself the question, what if, what if we were to reconsider that and reconsider that? And, of course, the more one went into it, the more it was clear well, there were some very serious questions to ask. And, of course, what I did not know was that uh, Goldman Sachs, or a partner in Goldman Sachs, had uh, was working behind the scenes, uh, assisting Maxwell in holding up his share price. Now, this wasn't uh, an act of... Um, excitement on his part, he had to have that share price up since all his borrowings, which were massive, um, were dependent upon these uh, the share price. I don't know why bankers are so stupid as to suppose that a share price is proof of anything. It, 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 it just isn't. So, 
Because people, if you can manipulate a share price, why would you willingly lend against it? I mean, it, it can't be right. Anyway, Maxwell uh, duly uh, had was a place called Schein, Scheinberg, I can't remember. I think he was based in New York as well. Uh, and anyway, Maxwell kept on producing figures which meant that those who had lent to Maxwell against his shareholding were not minded to call in the loan. But I, I'd suspect, with the benefit of hindsight, that more than a few bankers knew they'd had it. Uh, they, they, it was sort of going to come back. And uh, they just went along with this illusion that uh, it was all right on their books. And, and they didn't challenge it, and it just rolled on over the last two years as things deteriorated and deteriorated. And so anyway, I wrote a, a note, a review of the accounts of Maxwell Communication Corporation, and I had assistance on it, I may add, uh, but I said, um, review of the accounts of Maxwell Communication Corporation uh, by uh, Mr. Sanso, who helped me, and S.A. Corkwell. And he said, my friend said, you can't possibly put my name in it because that's contrary to securities legislation. And I said, rubbish. Um, so I just said, I'll, I'll just say it's by Evil Knievel. And that was how Evil Knievel was born. And it was pretty hard hitting, it really was. But it was all based on facts. It was defamatory of Maxwell, but there was nothing exaggerated or untruthful about it. It just said that, you know, that's the position with this fellow. And it went out at midnight that night to all the market makers, there were about 12 or 13 in London who dealt in Maxwell shares. And uh, I just thought I'd tip them off. But I had, um, the shares were about 140 pence from memory, something like that. And uh, the following day, because of my notes, I'm pleased to say, uh, the shares moved down, I don't know, 6p, 8p, something like that. And uh, I, since I had had a lot of financial trouble, a lot, I was quite sensitive to what would happen if people thought better of pushing the price of Maxwell down. So I closed my position and took a profit. It wasn't much, it was about, from memory, it was about £4,000, something like that. But I don't object to taking a profit of £4,000. <coughs> it's all good stuff. And that was when the pound would buy you two pounds a day, I suppose. So anyway, I know that sounds rather stupid, but anyway, uh, it, it was a profit. And I, I thought no more about it for a few hours. And then Maxwell went ballistic, absolutely ballistic, when he uh, was informed of this note. He said the most scandalous slur upon an Englishman. <laughs> Absolute rubbish. The man just spewed out rubbish. <laughs> and anyway, uh, 
so that was that. And then uh, a few days later, uh, the Sunday Times, I think it was, asked me, is there a Mr. Big behind the uh, declining share price in Maxwell? Well, there isn't really. It's just a market that people either sell or they buy. And if it settles lower, then the pressure has been downward selling. But the fact is that I was then 20 stone, which I now recognize as a flyweight. But anyway, <laughs> anyway, the result was that, uh, that, that, that I said yes. Of course, the moment I said yes, uh, this immediately asked the question, who is he, what's his name? And I said, well, since I had given birth to Evil Knievel, I would uh, say yes, he's called Evil Knievel. And <laughs> the result was that uh, so this name was born. It was just a joke, heavens. Anyway, the fact is that um, as the weeks went by, Every single bear raid in London was attributed to me, uh, sometimes because uh, I had expressed a view about various stocks, but often it was expressed by people who tried to show that it was not they who were circulating rumours, false or otherwise, about a stock, and there was that fellow Neville who was giving the trouble. Uh, indeed. Not that I invite you at this moment to do so, but uh, you'll find various newspaper cuttings on the wall here, which uh, is why I put you in here, the picture gallery, uh, to, uh, to, to, I've forgotten what I was going to say, the, the, the name got around, and, and then one day Michael Walters, the Daily Mail, asked me whether... I had uh, was responsible for uh, bashing the share price of Selfridges. Well, it was Sears Group then, wasn't it? I so long ago now. Anyway, I mean, this is 30 years ago, please. Anyway, the fact is that um, uh, I had nothing to do with the, the collapse in Sears price. And uh, so the following day, I was a bit surprised to read in the Daily Mail the the real evil Knievels had nothing to do with him. And then I realised I had uh, given birth to a character which clearly uh, had a bit further to run. And by that time, whenever I ring up brokers, I uh, I had a huge number of contacts in, in broking one description or another. Uh, I, in those days, one went, would go straight through to a lady who combined the function of telephonist and receptionist. That was normally the case. And people didn't have their own direct telephone. That was, that was the style of it. But uh, so the uh, lady in question would say, uh, who shall I say speaking? Uh, just say evil. And uh, evil is a very powerful word in some people's minds um, and as a result it, it gave a sort of shudder I think to the young ladies in question who had not been exposed to the idea of someone 
calling himself evil. Uh, anyway, it uh, it didn't matter. Uh, it it just it, it just assisted the legend of evil, and now I've got it. I mean, I don't mind. It's a bit of fun. But the fact is, that's how the name gained currency, uh, and it was good fun too. Well, Simon, we talked about you uh, betting in England and then in Zambia, and um, luckily not getting anything broken, for, yes. as well as apart from your bank balance. Yeah. So when did it all turn around for you? When did you start to realise that you had an aptitude to sort of make money? Well, you've got no choice, really, because if you've lost all your money, you can't lose any more. Therefore, you can only win. That sounds pretty ridiculous, but that's true. You can't escape that. So, Simon, after a, a slow start, you've made money, a lot of money, in the, in the city and on the horses. Which game did you find it hardest to beat? Well, there's no difference between the two games. It's just a question of identifying value and latching on to it. I've had all sorts of ups and downs, as I've told you, but uh, one thing I did do, which a lot of people came to do, uh, but where I threw caution to the winds, was when Betfair finally got hold of its, uh, a hold of liquidity, which it did about 2002, uh, I began to see the pricing of um, uh, bets on Betfair, like the stock market. One would see accumulation of volume and distribution, which is a chart term in the city, or for judging shares. And the, uh, I saw that there was a horse running at Newmarket, uh, and uh, the, uh, the the odds on the uh, going to the betting offices, I could tell from CFAX or whatever that service was on telly, was 11 to 1. And yet people were screaming to get on at 8 to 1 on Betfair and they were not being accommodated. And I immediately saw what's going on. And so I got on and had 2,000 each way at 11 to 1 and duly won 27,500, I think that's right, it is. Five and a half thousand plus twenty-two. So I had, so I won twenty-seven and a half thousand. I said, "This is really, really interesting." So I went on to make half a million pounds that year. Now, of course, were I a wise man, I would have stopped as soon as the trick ran out, which it did after about six months. It certainly wasn't going to go on forever, and uh, all my accounts. I hadn't had an account with Star Racing then, but the fact is that uh, all my accounts were closed. I just couldn't get on. And uh, but it, that was exciting. It was, that was really worth doing. Is that something you adopted for the sports betting as well? Was that a different beast? I didn't adopt it for sports betting, but there's no reason why one shouldn't or one couldn't have. I just didn't test it at the time. I don't think, um, I would have been surprised that football would have given one the same opportunity. What was striking was how the these uh, intense efforts to get money on, on Betfair, would build up for minutes at a time. It was quite extraordinary. 
but I, uh, I just feasted. There were many people, of course, who would uh, back it uh, on on course or you know, with normal betting officers, and then lay it back on Betfair. But I thought that was nonsense. I thought it much wiser to proceed on the basis that these chaps knew what they were doing, and we would just have to push ahead and have a go. And that's exactly what I did. You know that chap Patrick Veach, who's a very intelligent bloke? Well, he, of course, has taken the trouble to appoint the trainer and the horse and everything to be trained and dealt with, lined up. And uh, he's done the job properly, but I don't know how to do it that way. I don't have any connections, you see. If you hadn't been so successful in the city, do you think you would have you could have made it as a professional gambler? Would that have been something that you might have looked into? Well, I don't know is the answer to that. I think probably at one stage I could have. But as to whether I could do that now, I don't know. I, I doubt it. I'm too old really. I just I lack the um I lack the drive to do it. Mind you, Every now and then I get things right. For instance, about nine months ago, I had developed a small holding in a little company, and I, in the, in the months up to February of 2021, I went on adding more stock, at uh, more and more stock at around 0.3 pence a share, and uh, Eventually, when the rush came on, uh, I took some care over this because the market had made a huge mistake in assessing what was going on. I sold the stock, I should think, for an average of about 3p, and I made about two and a half million pounds for my family, some of which went into my pocket, which was a good idea. <laughs> 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 anyway, the, the result was that uh, I said to myself when I'd made the money, well, you may be very fat and very old, but you can still think a little quicker than the other side. And I'm pleased to say I don't rule out the possibility of doing that again. Do you think that the, the sort of brain and thought process that a successful person in the city, analytical, translates directly to being successful on sport as well? Is it the same thought process goes into picking winners yes, and losers? Yes, you must, you must be careful. You've got to think and do your own homework and check it and check it and check it. And by one means or another. And there, uh, I think I have developed some care in thinking. Not perhaps as much as I should have, but the fact is I have d developed some care and I've enjoyed that. It, uh, I've learnt a lot by it. And there must have been a, a massive change in the way you sort of analyse data from when you started in the 60s to oh, now. No comparison. So do, you, so do you think that do you think that with the technology that's available and the information that's available, yes. people with less skill can now yeah. overachieve with the with the uh, sort of advent of technology? So they don't need to be as clever as you were. Well, I, I hope I haven't said I was ever clever, 
I, I was just enthusiastic, let's put it that way. Um, a lot of enthusiastic losers out there, though, isn't there? Yes, well, uh, there are people who bet, I suppose, uh, this is the majority of punters, who make no effort whatsoever to think about things. And, of course, they have no choice but to lose. That's it. And have your, have your sort of strategies evolved over the years? Do you need to evolve your strategies in the stock market as well as you do to keep ahead of the horse racing game? I certainly think that looking at figures, uh, looking at accounts, is a very rewarding activity. But you've got to think about it. It's not easy. Now, you made, well, as long as my facts are right, you made a lot of money betting on sports at one point, but you don't do it anymore, or you still do a little Oh, of course, I'd love to have it. I mean, I lost 10,000 on Champions League last night, and, uh, and I'm not proud of it, but I think it was a bit tough having two red cards introduced to go against me. I'm talking about the uh, Liverpool Atletico match, the other one was PSG and Leipzig. I, I thought I might get some money back on those, but I didn't. Uh, so anyway, you live with the uncertainty of it. Well, something else is big at the moment. Lots of controversy. Bitcoin. I know it's a bit of a, a flank of this one, but what's your opinion on Bitcoin? Because a lot of people think about investing in that. Well, I wouldn't listen to what I have to say about Bitcoin. A young man about five years ago asked whether he should buy Bitcoin at 500 pounds. And I said, I don't think so. I mean, if you buy it, you don't go on a register of shareholders, do you? You can't trace where you are. And uh, I said, I'd be very cautious about that. Well, now we know they're worth $60,000 this morning. And I've completely misjudged that. I still don't understand it. And I'm, but I'm not going to get involved because the principal objection stands, which is that you cannot follow your investment. And I don't propose to, to do that. Okay, now you've, you're most famous for spotting a good loser on the stock market. Do you also look for losers in horse racing? Are you adverse to laying a short one that you think is over, uh, over, underpriced? Oh, yes, I would have a go at that uh, if I think uh, it's worth having a go. But I don't think my judgment is worth anything, really. Okay, I've, I've had one or two of them come right, but quite a few others that have gone wrong, so I wouldn't pay any attention to that. Can punting be a hobby, annual business, or is that not possible? Uh, it's not possible. You're either taking it seriously or you're not. You can't be serious one minute and unserious the next minute. <laughs> you can't. You can't do it. It can't be done. So you'd, we'd never have like a, a fun bet just because the football's on the telly. You'd you put some work into into it before you had a bet. Work is a very strong word in these circumstances. Uh, well, I, I ask friends of mine who follow football and they tell me these things. I myself, uh, I don't even know how the offside rule works. I mean, that's, it's that bad. So I, I really don't, uh, I wouldn't pay any attention to what I think.
about soccer. And I used to talk a lot, quite a lot to Darren Bloom, who's Tony Bloom's brother. And I haven't spoken to him for years, I don't know why. But uh, as you know, his brother uh, is a very intelligent bloke and has made a huge amount of money betting. And uh, that, I think, is the result of knowing what you're talking about. I've never been in that position. Well, one thing, I'm assuming you do know what you're talking about, and also I assume that your vintners are a lot happier to hear from you than your bookmakers. Well, um, is, it, is it your interest in wine? Is that uh, investment or purely pleasure? Oh, I, I think anyone who invests in wine is mildly crackers. There's, uh, it's true that people have made money out of it, but really it's not an investment. It's a deteriorating... Uh, consumer good, that's all it is. Uh, I've I had one or two very good wines of great age. Um, uh, for instance, they, uh, I had a memorable evening at Maxim's de Paris. Uh, the Japanese bought this restaurant in about uh, 1980, and with it came this truly vast wine cellar. And by the time I and Anne went, went along there for supper as a guest of a chap. Um, this would have been about 2003, I think. And uh, I, I, there was a wine list there, the like of which I had never seen before and which I will never in my life see again. But it stretched back to 1800 or something like that. And it really was very, very old. And of course, it's entirely pointless because the wine is not supposed to be held that long. It, can't, it, can't, it, doesn't, it doesn't live that long. And it's uh, also, in practical terms, uh, a reasonable Bordeaux from this list. Uh, I think I chose one dated 1920, uh, something like that. Uh, it has to be opened, uh, and having been opened, you don't have time to filter it you, because the smell's going away. And I should think at least a quarter of the bottle is sediment. Quite extraordinary. To open it means inevitably having it upright, and then that causes more disturbance. I, it doesn't make any sense. I thought it was an interesting wine. And I don't know whether you yourself have acquired a wine of this age, but if it's any help to you, I wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> and there's, a, there's a, 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 young, a young chap out there working in the city, made themselves a nice few quid, and they're thinking they can use their analytical brain to become an a investor on the turf. What would your advice be to them? Uh, don't. <laughs> that, I think that's, that's probably the best advice, yes. But, you know, it's, things are changing. Uh, and, um, for instance, in the light of my experience in the Far East, uh, betting on City Bet, which, as you know, is based in Taiwan, um, you can make money there, provided you get paid. I'm sorry to say my agent has 
stolen perhaps a hundred thousand pounds from there, which I find extremely tiresome. Anyway, the fact is that uh, uh, provided you got what is nil margin betting, uh, I there's no, I mean it's possibly a percent on turnover, all told. You've got very interesting um, propositions in Hong Kong, but it's, um, and in Singapore as it happens, but uh, I don't, and, and Australia too, but I, uh, you've got to be well placed to get involved there. And what people have failed to understand, and I tried to get an opportunity to explain this to the minister, or the then minister, Oliver Dowden, and they just didn't understand what's going on. But this country will have to do something about raising funds for racing. And the bookmakers are not prepared to pay. They say, well, why should we? The business goes along. And, uh, you know, there's no point. But at the moment, the yield from bookmakers is very, is much less than it needs to be to keep a great sporting and cultural feature of this country alive. And I think that's a mistake. Excellent. And on that note, Simon Courtwell, thank you very much. Well, I didn't know why you found that interesting, but you're very welcome. <laughs> New Betting People interviews are published every week at Star Sports. Exclusive interviews with the key people from the world of sports betting. Check out our full library of interviews at starsportsbet.co.uk. BeGambleAware.org. Over 18 only.